Welcome to the Johns Hopkins University Press Podcast. I'm Mary Alice Yeske with the Hopkins Press Journals Division. Joining us today is Dr. Brian Earp. Dr. Earp is the Associate Director of the Yale Hastings Program in Ethics and Health Policy at Yale University and is a Research Fellow at the Yohiro Center for Practical Ethics at the University of Oxford. He is the co-author of Love Drugs, The Chemical Future of Relationships, from Stanford University Press, and writes the quarterly Philosophy in the Real World column for The Philosopher. He has published extensively on moral psychology, experimental philosophy, and bioethics, including a 2017 paper titled Addicted to Love, What is Love Addiction and When Should It Be Treated?, which appeared in the journal Philosophy, Psychiatry, and Psychology. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brian. I really appreciate your time today. It's my pleasure. The first question I'd like to ask all our guests is, can you tell us what is your academic origin story? Oh, I have a pretty convoluted academic origin story, so I'll try to be concise. Uh, When I was an undergraduate, I studied philosophy and cognitive science primarily. Um, And even that was a a bit of a trek to get there because I started out as an English major. I, I didn't know anything about philosophy or cognitive science. I knew I liked reading books and I liked thinking about big questions that come up in literature and so forth. But um, I, I ended up studying uh, both the scientific area and, and philosophy. Then I went on and studied experimental psychology in England for a master's degree. And, but I was still doing some philosophy while I was there. Uh, my, my course projects ended up being a little bit more philosophical in nature. Then I went and I kind of was learning a little bit about bioethics and formally went back and did another degree that was in history and philosophy of science, medicine and technology. Uh, and then I went back and did some bioethics while I was also doing a theater career at the time. And then I finally decided to apply for a PhD which is in philosophy and psychology. So I've been all over the place doing a bunch of different things and it's not clear how they all unite into some beautiful strand of coherent work, but um, that's more or less my, my academic background in a nutshell. I think I think everybody has a convoluted academic origin story, so it's you're in, you're in good company. Your paper explores two main schools of thought regarding love as an addiction. The narrow view, which says that only really harmful forms of love are addictive, because by definition, an addiction is harmful, and the broader view that all love is potentially or perhaps even mildly addictive, as it's a spectrum, a kind of a continuum of an appetite, and that that appetite can sometimes become overstimulated. My question is, do you think that there's also a consideration to be made for personal interpretation in terms of when something is addictive or harmful? What one person might call an obsession, another person might call love sickness or puppy love. Um, who do you think is the ultimate authority on whether a relationship is harmful? That's a really good question because it plays up the jockeying for power that, that happens in many discourses where certain people want to claim primacy over the ability to define terms or say how we should refer to certain things. So, you know, the, the medical, psychiatric, clinical, diagnostic group of people want to be able to say, we get to decide what counts as uh, an addiction, whether it's um, an addiction having to do with romantic, uh, you know, relationships or whether it's gambling addiction or something else. So even within that field, there's a controversy. You know, some people think that to speak of love addiction is just inappropriate, that uh, we shouldn't count this as a diagnostic category that would be um, treated as standard within medicine, for example. They would say, for example, if something is really harmful and 
obsessive and you um, are drawn towards certain kinds of relationships despite they're being toxic and harmful, we shouldn't refer to that as love. There's also a feminist philosophy argument that goes along these lines. They say love is a positive thing. So if we allow toxic or abusive relationships or something where somebody's welfare is clearly being impaired by, by the connection, to, to sort of adorn it with the label love is, is dangerous and something we shouldn't do. So there's debates within medicine, there's debates within philosophy. And then what I take your point to be is, well, what about the person who's in the relationship? Shouldn't they have some sort of say over how to conceptualize their own experience? And I think that's really important. I think there's a tendency to defer to experts in some sense, sometimes to the exclusion of the person's own interpretation of their life and their relationship. So there can be a sort of paternalism here where somebody will say, I hereby deem your relationship to be uh, one that exhibits you know, addictive behaviors. And you might be thinking to yourself, well, maybe sure, I'm, a, I'm obsessed with this person in some sense, but I value that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I enjoy the, the, the intensity and the spark of this and so forth. So yeah, I, there's no universal line that can be drawn in the sand where we're all gonna get on board with, with the analysis. I think for people who are in relationships that many of us deem to be harmful or toxic or bad for them in some way, it certainly makes sense that we would want to try to persuade the person of this perspective and try to bring them information and show them why it is that they might be, um, you know, tolerating uh, harms more than they should be. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there's a risk of sort of overriding someone's own interpretive framework and, and realizing that there's a lot of uh, complex meanings that we associate with different kinds of interpersonal and romantic experiences. And not all of those can necessarily be uh, captured by these medical diagnostic criteria, even if that was a matter of agreement among experts. Your research also touches on the ethical implications of anti-love biotechnology, which is also covered in your book, Love Drugs. What would or do, if they're already happening, these technologies look like? How do they work? Right. There's a couple of different ways that you can intervene in a person's brain level chemistry to try to affect the relationship in a way that would dull or uh, detract from their sense of attachment with someone. So uh, one is just as a side effect of a commonly prescribed drug, which falls under the class of SSRIs, which stands for selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. And these drugs are very commonly prescribed for depression and anxiety and some other things. And many people are now aware that SSRIs can have side effects that are relevant to relationships, one of which is that it can depress libido or kind of weaken a person's uh, sex drive. And if you're in a sexual relationship with someone and you value being able to interact with them in that way, this can be detrimental to, to some kinds of relationships. But there's also a side effect that some people report where it isn't just this physiological dampening of their interest in sex that happens, but they have what they describe as a sort of higher level blunting of their emotional life. Uh, so it's not just maybe that their own sadness is is depressed, which is which is perhaps the point of the drug, but it's that they find they can't really care about the feelings of their partner either. Uh, there's this this general blandness that over overtakes their life, and so uh, what this suggests is that you know if you want to be intimate with someone and if you want to pursue a relationship with them and you want to feel emotionally connected with them, then this would be a really unfortunate side effect, and and this this is bad for some relationships. But if you're finding yourself irresistibly drawn towards someone whom you consider to be a, reflectively a, a bad relationship partner. You find yourself constantly seeking after someone who, when you step back and think about it, you know, I really shouldn't be with this person. This person is harmful to me. This person abuses me. This person disrespects me or whatever. Then it's possible that this quote unquote side effect of the drug could be an intended effect where mm. you would want to have this sort of blunting toward 
the other person at least long enough to get out of the relationship and then maybe go off the drug and you know set up your life elsewhere because of course this is a global effect it isn't just your intimate partner uh, whose feelings you would uh, not not be as motivated to respond to it might be everybody in your life if you're one of the people who has this kind of um, side effect in your case so that's just a commonly used drug that is already available that's widely prescribed that can have these indirect effects for relationships and this just ties up with a broader point that western medicine focuses on the individual level symptoms of uh, a, a, of a target of treatment and so if you run a clinical trial to see what the effects are of an ssri on depression you're just going to have a questionnaire saying what are your symptoms of depression mm. but if you had also included a questionnaire that said well tell me about your relationship have you noticed mm -hmm. any changes in your emotional life with your partner then you would be able to systematically understand the effects of these drugs on these other variables. But the key point is just because you don't measure something doesn't mean it isn't happening. Okay. And we have, so, you know, partly in the book, we just call for a relational turn in, in psych psychopharmacology in general, where it's not enough to be looking at the individual level symptoms of what's going on. We should always be considering if we're gonna give a drug to somebody that has a pretty powerful effect on their brain chemistry, we need to understand not just what are the intended effects or what are the low level biophysiological side effects, but what are the side effects at a bigger level, side effects for relationships, side effects for how we're situated within our social networks and so forth. Okay, so that's one example. Then you might think, well, what happens if you get out of a relationship? You've succeeded in uh, leaving someone, or perhaps that person has, you know, left you. Uh, you have a partner of twenty years, and they've suddenly abandoned you, and you're just in complete despair, mm -hmm. or you're going through a breakup of some kind. Well, is there a way then to to help you, as it were, get over the relationship? And you know, there are all the usual ways of doing this. You can, you know, stop uh, following the person on Facebook and try to delete their number from your phone, and mm -hmm. don't hang out in the places where you regularly see each other, and so forth. There's all sorts of non-biochemically mediated ways of trying to get over someone. But suppose that this betrayal that happened, you know, or the breakup that happened is one from which you're uh, really struggling to recover. And every time you reflect on what happened, it just causes this meltdown. And this is going on for weeks and months at end. It seems like, well, maybe this would be a situation where it could be appropriate or prudent to pursue some further uh, means of trying to to overcome the problem. And so there's an interesting therapy that's now being tried uh, primarily in Canada, uh, where, which is called reconsolidation therapy. And this is a way of basically stripping the emotional content of certain kinds of traumatic memories, mm -hmm. but not deleting the memories in a sort of eternal sunshine of the spotless mind type of way. Right. So, um, yeah, and, and you wouldn't necessarily want to do that. Suppose you've had a traumatic experience. You've gone through a breakup. You've had this really difficult thing. It's not that you necessarily want to forget that it happened because mm -hmm. then this interrupts the narrative continuity of your life. I mean, that right. would start to be a real worry if somebody said, you know, weren't you, uh, didn't you have a breakup with so-and-so? And you go, yeah, yeah, I actually can't remember that. Did, 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 did that happen? Now that seems like a problem. So we want to be able to remember what happened to us, but we want to be able sometimes to dampen the emotional effects of those memories if mm -hmm. they're preventing us from healing and moving on with our lives and forming healthy relationships going forward. So the way this therapy works is you go into the clinic, you call up whatever is the traumatic memory, the memory of the breakup or the romantic betrayal or whatever it was, um, but while you're doing it, you're taking a drug called propranolol, which is a beta blocker and basically it just settles down some of your automatic emotional responses to stimuli. Mm -hmm. So this is used by, for example, some uh, professional musicians who are trying to calm their nerves during performances. So they, oh, okay. they might take a beta blocker to, to settle down their autonomic nervous system. And so what happens is then you, you, you recall the memory 
but you have a drug that's suppressing your emotional response to the memory. And so you're able to experience in real time what it's like to have the memory without the emotional response. Mm. And then you can re-record it uh, after this session. And, and then the idea is after several such iterations of this, you, uh, you should be able to, when you're not um, taking the drug, to reflect on the memory without then having, you sort of learned how to have the memory without this, this response. So this is a way where there's some, you know, a, a chemical that can be used in conjunction with the therapeutic context to help some people overcome a relationship when it rises to a level of, of trauma that's comparable to post-traumatic stress disorder. And that hmm. was the context in which this therapy was originally. I was going to ask, was this originally, yeah. you know, invent, invented, not invented, but yeah, that was my, my question was, what was the original purpose of this kind of therapy? That's really interesting. And has this been successful? Well, so far, I mean, the, the research that's available for the classic cases of post-traumatic stress disorder uh, seem, seem to be promising in terms of the treatment effects. Um, the evidence uh, for how this helps people who have, have traumas related to relationships that maybe don't rise to a clinical diagnosis of PTSD, um, I've just seen indirect reports of the evidence mm -hmm. there, sort of reports coming out of the lab that haven't yet been published through peer review and so forth. So I'd like to see more evidence of how this works in the case of relationships, mm -hmm. but there's there's some pre preliminary accounts that from this lab where this work has been done that it seems to be effective, at least for some people. That's so interesting. And I really like your use of the word re-recording because it's yeah. like, you're just sort of, you're you're editing the, the reaction to the memory, not the memory itself. It's almost like- right taking something from stereo to mono or something. I'm sure there's a better yeah. extended metaphor there, but that, that's really well, that's interesting. That's a nice way of saying it, yeah. Um, I was struck by the portion of your research that detailed the differences between love and addiction, uh, in particular, how love is sort of universal. How, well, not everyone on earth would know what it's like to crave alcohol to the point of discomfort um, or you know, really interrupting their life. Romantic love is a universal phenomenon, which you note in your paper, and that pretty much everyone knows what that sort of crushing obsession feeling is and what that's like. How do you think that this impacts the value judgment based on love when it goes awry or becomes unhealthy? The fact that everyone kind of knows what that initial feeling feels like. I think maybe in retrospect, I would want to edit my presumption of universality that we included in that paper in, hmm. in a couple of ways. First is that, you know, there's an underlying biological dimension of love that comes from the fact that we evolved as creatures who have to mate with each other in order to reproduce and certain kinds of bonds like the parental bond is important for us to form if we're going to have offspring and so there's a sort of bioevolutionary story that you can tell about why certain brain level properties exist that support and undergird our experience of love but then i think it's important to say that the phenomenological experience of love as inflected through one's cultural context is not necessarily the same everywhere you go Oh, so, um, you know, the way that we think about love, for example, the concepts that we use, which types of experiences we even want to label as an instance of love can be subject to cultural and historical contingencies. Mm -hmm. So an example that we talked about in the book, which I borrow from Carrie Jenkins, who's a philosopher of love uh, in Canada, I believe. Um, she brings up the example of a, a lesbian couple in the late 1700s in England. And she says, now, according to the lights of the society at the time, they're, they, you know, they may be having all the sorts of biological, physiological responses, you know, they get their, their, they find it hard to breathe when they see the other person and they're excited and they, you know, their hands get clammy when they, uh, you know, hold hands because they're just so in love with each other. Um, they might be having all these kinds of things going on, but the society might not recognize their relationship as, as it were, a valid instance of love. It might be dismissed as something else. Mm -hmm. And this can have very real consequences, of course, for their experience, because it means 
that as they're walking down the street, they may not, they might not be able to manifest their feelings for one another. They might not be able to hold hands. They might not be able to you know have children together or whatever it might be. And so when you realize that the way that a society gives you a narrative or a set of concepts about love can trickle down and have pretty big implications for your actual experience of you know relating emotionally and romantically to another person, you start to realize that it isn't the same for everyone, um, even within a society as this example shows, um, much less across societies and so forth. So I, so I, I just draw that distinction that there's individual differences in how love is experienced. Some people report that they, they don't know if they've experienced love. Some people will say, you know, I read these poems and I, I watch these films and I, I have this evidence that I get that some people seem to be having this ecstatic uh, kind of response to another human being and they just are beside themselves and, and so forth. And, you know, to be honest, I've never experienced that or I'm not sure if I've experienced that. So um, certainly I think it's the case that it's normalized within society to have uh, an obsessive, all-consuming desire and passion for someone that is dissimilar to how we feel about someone who has an all-consuming desire for alcohol or for drugs or for gambling. Mm -hmm. uh, the latter sort of thing is more or less universally condemned, whereas the former sort of thing is, at least within contemporary Western society, more or less universally celebrated. Um, but even that wasn't always true. You know, if you think of the story of Romeo and Juliet, obviously, you know, we contemporary readers are very excited about their star-crossed uh, passionate love, but the families were not at all approving of their uh, connection because it was seen as a threat to the social order. Mm -hmm. And so maybe for most of quote unquote Western history, love was seen as a illness, um, at least the kind of passionate romantic early stage love that we're talking about when you have a crush on someone. Mm -hmm. That was seen as something that was quite dangerous because marriages anyway were meant to be based on social and economic factors, you know, right. which families needed to form an alliance or did you have to have children to run the farm or something like that. But the right. idea that you would build a lifelong commitment to someone on the back of something so fleeting and unstable as uh, a romantic love as we now conceive of it was seen as, as an absurdity. I'm, I'm thinking about Fiddler on the Roof right now because of what you just said in terms oh, of- Oh, yes, that's fascinating, yes, you know, yes. Uh, the way that that song, Do You Love Me and how they, they were yes. arranged marriage and it just sort of like, do, is this, you know, and that how sweet, that, I love how that sweet the know, end of the song is. Yes, exactly. So I wrote I wrote a paper with some colleagues recently on on the concept of true love as that mm -hmm. gets invoked in just ordinary discourse. And we tried to figure mm -hmm. out, well, what what really do people mean when they say that or what mm -hmm. features of a relationship are they trying to pick out either explicitly or implicitly? And, you know, one view is that true love might just be the most highly prototypical love that has all the features of love that we tend to think about, including intimacy, passion and commitment. And then when we were reflecting on this, we came up with the example of Fiddler on the Roof, where they oh, don't really? have a passion, they don't have a passionate relationship. It's not that they're, you know, gazing into each other's eyes lovingly, whatever. They basically just have a marriage where they are there for each other and they, you know, do various tasks around the house and whatever. And they've they've come to form a sort of intimacy through a shared experience, mm -hmm. but they don't have a prototypical loving relationship if what if what that requires is you know, full-fledged passion, full-fledged intimacy, full-fledged commitment. You know, they have a very committed relationship. Mm -hmm. They have a certain kind of intimacy, but it's not through direct emotional disclosure or whatever. Mm -hmm. But what I take the point of that song to be is that, yes, they clearly love each other, mm -hmm. um, even though they, they don't fit the kind of passionate love that they are observing in their daughters, let's say. Right, and the trajectory so, yeah. was completely different. Exactly. Yeah. Mm -hmm. exactly. So so I, so I think that's a, that's a great point that, you know, love, there, there are things that are properly so-called love, even though they don't, necessarily have all the criteria that we tend to think of as being prototypically um, associated with romantic love. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And also the, the chronology of it, you know, in, in the sense yeah. that, you know, when you said, when you say true love in my head, I, I'm imagining that, that electric lightning pow when right. it both, it, ha- it has to happen to both people simultaneously or else it's not true. Love, yeah. You know, and it's yeah. that, you know, Fiddler and just other relationships where two people can meet, not think much of each other, meet again 10 years later. And then it happened. It's like, it's, I don't know the value placed on that, like instantaneous, simultaneous yeah. connection is so much higher yeah. in, in our society when it, it could be, it could be 20 years down the road. It just takes some time. Yeah. And, and, and to dwell for a moment on the idea of an arranged marriage, I mean, many people have a view when they think of an arranged marriage as like a forced marriage between, you know, people who are where it's the community requires that they get together, but there's many different and, and unwilling. Arranged. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, there's many different traditions of arranged marriages, some of which, you know, the, the partners have a veto at least, and the families are in good faith trying to find people who they think would be compatible for each other. Mm-hmm. And so what typically happens, or at least what often happens in those situations, is that the partners um, are getting together, they're, they're forming a relationship, a, a, an ostensibly romantic relationship, not because they fell in love with each other, but because they were set up by their families. And then they have the interesting pro- process of whether they can create a sense of love and intimacy mm-hmm. within the relationship, as it were, from scratch. And in these cases, it might be that it, it's something that slowly evolves and emerges out of the daily interactions that they have and the kinds of behaviors that they engage in rather than something that's like being struck by lightning. Mm-hmm. And you know, if, if you step back and analyze these different ways that a relationship can develop, it's not clear that that's any worse or less worthy of exactly. celebration. Exactly. If a couple you know, exercises their agency to try to develop a sense of intimacy, even if they never have that uh, passionate, um, ecstatic kind of romantic um, feeling for one mm-hmm. another. There was a really good New Yorker article about sort of bringing back or, or expanding the definition and, and having, you know, being able to say that I love my friends very dearly. And that is just as this valuable. This just came out yesterday in, on NPR, I think it was. Yeah. Oh, it yeah. Was like, it, was, it was called something like friends with benefits. But That's, it's, yeah, it's, but it's, it's, it's just like, yeah. I need that just as much as I need my, my partner. Um, and that yeah, wish, I mean, the weight of those is just so messed up in this society that it like, you know, especially these days when you really, your support systems are just, you know, absolutely yeah, required. I, I, I mean, basically a point that comes out of this is we tend to have these social scripts that we inherit from being socialized within a a given culture where we, we have ideas as to what appropriate relationships should be. And they tend to fall into certain categories. So we think, well, there's the uh, romantic partner relationship. There's the lover relationship. There's the friend relationship. There's the parent child relationship. And we sort of get handed these by our culture as, as ways in which we should conceive of our interactions with other people over time. And as a consequence of that, we, we actually aren't attentive to possibilities that might unfold between us and another person because mm-hmm. we're trying to measure our interactions against what we think the prescribed relationship norm is. Exactly. And so there are some people who say, what if we were to relax our vision a little bit here and blur around the edges and say, why couldn't it be that you could have a friend with whom you also had some intimate experiences without that thereby detracting from or destabilizing the friendship? Or, you know, why couldn't it be the case that you could have what you consider to be a romantic relationship with someone, you live together for many years, but maybe you don't have a sexual interaction with one right. another. Maybe that's great. Or maybe you have sexual interactions with other people, but you still mm-hmm. consider yourselves to be in a romantic relationship. And it's just, you know, giving us the ability to be a little bit more creative about how we conceive of how we're relating to other people. And then that's going to affect how we do in fact relate to other people. Agreed. And I, I read an, another... I read something about how, particularly with the onset of COVID, how there were people who were, you know, getting divorced, breaking up, but still cohabitating and creating this entirely new thing, which is, you know, 
we're not really roommates, you know, we, we have a history, we still care deeply about each other. It just, the redefining of it, um, I, I think is, is something that, um, I find really fascinating. And like you said at the beginning, just the, the buckets that we've just been taught to put things in reminds me very much of the gender binary. It's like, you're just either Absolutely. one or the other. And all of our language reflects that there is no, yeah. like, you know, you're not my friend, you're not my wife. I don't yeah. know what to call you. There's just the, the language is, is, is tricky because, we don't have any word for that in between or, or, or something new that you've created yourself. I just, I think there's a lot of space for that. Right. And it often constrains our imagination. The mm -hmm. ways that we can even contemplate being with one another are oftentimes shaped and confined by our language. If I don't know how to refer to something, it's a little mm -hmm. hard to explain to others what we're doing. I mean, this is a good example. Suppose you have a relationship that you're developing with someone that isn't clearly, I don't know, a boyfriend, girlfriend relationship, or let's say a boyfriend, boyfriend relationship or whatever. Um, but it has some of those features. And then, somebody comes along and says, oh, so what's your relationship like with so-and-so? Well, if you don't have a word for what you're doing, you have to sort of you know, avoid the question or launch into a 12 minute speech about how it's complicated and so forth. But imagine if we had a word for such things and we could mm -hmm. just say, well, we're like this. And then the other person go, oh, okay, I know basically what that is. And so I think it's true that you know, the, the, the conceptual resources that are made available to, to us through our language can really affect you know, the social costs of trying to do something new because it's hard to explain to other people what you're doing mm -hmm. unless they share your presuppositions from, from the language. Exactly. And if you can't explain it and you can't point to a universally understood example, you can't say, right. you know, which, which maybe then maybe we're getting better there in, in pop culture. And, you know, I think that perhaps, but there, you know, there are, there are relationships on, on shows that we can point to that are, you know, a little increasingly. More, yeah. Fortunately. Yeah, that's true. That's true. And that, that points to an interesting role of um, TV and film and so forth and art in general to uh, help us expand our imaginations as to what's possible and to create mutually accessible exemplars that we can then point to as a society and say, you know, it's kind of like that relationship from that movie. Yeah. And it, yeah, that touchstone is just so, is so valuable to somebody who doesn't have, you know, doesn't have the word. What are you currently working on research wise? Do you have any um, upcoming papers or books that you'd like to share with us? I have a whole bunch of different uh, papers and books going on. So, okay, so one book I'm working on right now is an edited volume on the philosophy of sex and sexuality with uh, two of my wonderful colleagues. One is Claire Chambers, who's at the University of Cambridge, and the other is Laurie Watson, who was at, I think, Washington University of St. Louis. And so we're, we're really enjoying bringing the tools of analytic philosophy to bear on stuff that really matters to a lot of us, our, our, including our romantic relationships, but also, you know, what is, well, to expand on our earlier theme, you know, what is, for example, a sexual orientation? That's another thing where, like you mentioned with a gender binary, we have certain ideas. Well, you're either gay or you're straight or you're bisexual. Those are the categories that are available and through which you can understand your own experiences. And so again, if you try to explode those categories open a little bit and understand all the different ways in which our sexual dispositions can manifest and feel to us and you know, um, come out in different relationships, a lot of interesting questions are raised by that. So that's one big project. Um, uh, another book that I'm, uh, supposed to be writing any day now is um, <laughs> is focused on the notion of a child's right to bodily integrity. And mm. this is something that's complicated because in the case of adults, it's defined through consent. So any infringement into my bodily sphere that I don't consent to is a violation of my right to bodily integrity. Mm -hmm. In the case of children, if they're very young, there's a sense in which they can't consent to anything. But of course, that doesn't mean you that therefore have a blank slate to just, uh, you know, intrude into their bodies in, in any way you like. And so it, when there's controversial practices that involve 
you know, for example, a culturally motivated surgery or something like that. Mm -hmm. There's a sense in which the people who are doing it think it's a good thing. Others might see it as a, a violation of the child's right to bodily integrity. But in the latter case, they can't just appeal to consent. They can't say, well, the child didn't consent to it because the first person can say, well, children can't consent to anything. Right. So that's not a, that's not, that doesn't work as an argument. So I'm trying to figure out, well, what is an argument that works? How can we decide what the moral limits are uh, for the ways that we interact with people mm -hmm. who aren't in a position to consent to our, our bodily uh, um, interferences? Hmm. That's really interesting. And, and very topical, what with, you know, vaccines coming up as, you know, I think some yeah. people put, would put that in that category. Some people wouldn't, but yeah. again, it's, it's very gray, you know, you're yeah. putting something in somebody else's body and that's really interesting. Yeah. And you said that was a, 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 a paper or a book? Well, it's a whole bunch of papers that I've been okay. working on for a long time, but um, it's supposed to manifest as a book sometime right. in the next year that. or so. So I'll, yes, I'll try to try to weave it all together into just one coherent narrative. I've been catching myself because I, I've for for the longest time I've noticed, and maybe this is because I'm a parent, but when I see very very young babies with ears pierced, it always yeah. sort of strikes me. I'm like, God, she's such a baby. Why, you know, why would you do that? And it's and it is. It's a knee jerk judgmental reaction on my part, um, where I'm sure it's perfectly fine in, in that family. But in my head, it was, for me, it was something I was bestowed upon when I was 10, you know, that I was given permission yeah. by my parents to do this. So I don't know. It's, yeah. um, it's right. And you could, and you could participate in the decision-making. Mm -hmm. You could decide whether the risks of ear piercing were worth it to you. I mean, mm -hmm. I think a lot of people think that ear piercing is so trivial that it doesn't rise to the doesn't level count of as like circumcision. Or, I think yeah. it's like, yeah, circumcision might be more controversial because at least you recognize it's a surgery. So mm -hmm. you can sort of see why there would be a concern there with ear piercing. Some people say, oh, it's not enough. But I, I think, you know, people don't recognize that there's a pretty decent risk of infection, especially if the child's really young and they can't take care of it themselves. That's the right. whole thing. If you're a baby or whatever, you rely on a caretaker to notice when something's wrong. Um, the second issue is that you can have nerve damage. You can have mm -hmm. scarring and keloid formation and so forth. So it's actually a pretty risky thing to do. And although I agree that it's not as severe as something like a circumcision, which I also argue against in my work, at least when it's not medically necessary, mm -hmm. uh, I've also raised arguments against ear piercing. I don't think that it's like, should be considered a criminal act or something like that. I just think that there are moral reasons not to do it that many people don't tend to take seriously because they think of it as a trivial thing. But of course, many people think of circumcision as a trivial thing too. And I try to similarly say, well, it isn't it isn't that trivial. It's a genital right. surgery. Irreversible. So should, yeah. It's irreversible and it involves a private part of the body. So we yeah. should, at the very least, it should be on our moral radar or something to talk about. It's not something we should just take for granted. And I'm thinking about the, the arguments too, in terms of, you know, the, if someone said giving a vaccine is, is, is the same and it's like, mm -hmm. well, you're not, cause you're preventing ear right. piercing doesn't prevent anything, you know, but I, I know, I yeah. know that there are people who would say it's all the same, like just don't touch them in any way until they can say yeah. yes or no. Um, but the thing about a vaccine that I think is significant is it doesn't uh, it doesn't change the morphology of the body. You don't mm. you don't remove tissue, for example. Right, right. Uh, and 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 if if that is what a vaccine required, so imagine that a vaccine, in order to get the vaccine, you actually did have to excise healthy living functional tissue or something like mm. that. Like people a, would be yeah. like, well, yeah, they'd be like, maybe we shouldn't do it actually. Right. Or at least <laughs> the 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 threshold for permissibility would be shifted dramatically. So I think the fact that it's sort of a de minimis intervention in terms of actually changing the, our physiology uh, in, a, in a way that like, you know, and again, vaccines also don't affect like private parts of our body in contentious ways and so forth. So I think there's just like a lot of disanalogies between vaccines and other kinds of surgeries and even between ear piercing. Mm -hmm. um, but nevertheless, the way in which it's similar is people say, you know, it hurts. You're certainly intruding into the bodily sphere of the child. They may not fully understand why you're doing it or be prepared to, you know, agree to it or participate in it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so, you know, 
we have to be at least think through what are what's the basis for permissibly uh, putting a needle in somebody. And you know, I think vaccines are permissible. Um, and so, you know, it's been a challenge for me in my course of doing this work to figure out what's a principled reason for saying why, yeah, mm. vaccines are okay, but ear piercing is maybe questionable. Right. It's an interesting line to try to draw, but that's part of the fun of working on this stuff <laughs> is you have to figure out how to get your moral intuition right. straight. That's why you went into ethics. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's really interesting. Yeah. And um, and yeah, I'm just thinking about, you know, tattoos and, and all the ways that this right. road could go down and um, exactly. Yeah. Interesting work. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your book. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my great pleasure. Thanks for your questions. This podcast is a production of Johns Hopkins University Press. For more information, please visit press.jhu.edu slash journals.